Hello, comrades. It's episode 219 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy. As always, I think it's time, finally, time for us to sit down and talk about uh, these large language models, GPT chat, uh, maybe some Dolly 2 thrown in there. All this, all this consumer facing AI, uh, largely, uh, created and roll and being rolled out by open AI, uh, that, that, you know, every, everybody's playing with, everybody's talking about. We've been staying away from it for a little bit just to kind of, you know, not not be super reactive, but I think it's about time we we spend some some uh, quality time talking about this stuff, discussing it, uh, throwing up some early analysis. But before we get into that, got 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 a little bit of other things to hit on before we roll into the main course for for this episode and maybe maybe next week's premium episode as well. Uh, first. I learned mere hours before recording um, that I have I've got a I've got a book contract for my second book now from University of California Press UC Press uh, a, a great pub, a great university publisher does a, a continually does a lot of excellent work around labor. Uh, around technology, they've got a, a friend of the show, David A. Banks. Uh, his book is coming out on UC Press. Um, it's a it's a fantastic uh, lineup. They've got a new editor there who's uh, working on and expanding the technology studies and economics uh, series in the book, and she's she's been really great. Shout out to Michelle. Um, I've been working with her on this proposal for my second book. Uh, and I just learned that the publication committee at the UC Press um, has enthusiastically approved to offer me a contract, which means now I got to write the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be fun. It'll be a f- it sounds like it'll be a fun undertaking for you, um, the, your second book. Yeah, absolutely. So the working title right now, uh, you know, all this is of course subject to change, but the working title is The Mechanic and the Luddite, How to Understand and Even Undermine Technology and Capitalism. Um, so I really want to try to build out those two archetypes of the mechanic and the Luddite as a kind of, you know, a critical approach for uh, analyzing and evaluating technological capitalism like really you know if, if my first book too smart was was focused on a, a kind of deep dive into a specific area of technology and capitalism you know smart technology uh, mainly well you know this book is is meant to be more of a like a return to the fundamentals right like a a a, a dive into uh, key features uh, and topics within technological capitalism, um, all kind of oriented around these figures of the the mechanic and the luddite. So, I'm 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 excited. I'm pumped. I've been working on this for you know just kind of low key, silently been working on this idea and this proposal for a while, uh, drafting you know the chapters, and I'm very excited to have the contract and actually. Get down to get down to work on it uh, in the in the first half of next year. 
It's going to be good. I'm really excited for it. And I'm really excited for more Luddite propaganda. I mean, we, you know, next year is going to be a good year. Lots of, lots of free time to, to, to write about why we should do sabotage and why we should think about socially useful production and, and all sorts of uh, projects and, and writing that's waiting to be uh, released from other Luddite writers and thinkers as well. Yeah, I think uh, Brian Merchant's long-awaited book, mm -hmm. Blood in the Machine, uh, is meant to come out next year. And I've read a draft manuscript of that book, and it's, it's good. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, that's yeah. going to be a banger for sure. It's good. This is, this is the time of Ludd. We live in the age of Ludd, and Luddism is resurgent, He's uh, back, and we baby. love to see it. He's back. Patron, you know, we're going to, this is a good year. We're going to pay homage to our patron saints. Um, Ned, uh, Ned Ludd. I was about to say Ned Brown, Ned Ludd and, uh, and John Brown. <laughs> Maybe we'll add a third one. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and gotta give a big, big shout out and props to you, Ed, for getting this fellowship, uh, releasing you from your prison of, uh, of wage labor and, <laughs> and giving you just a ton of time for the, the first six months of next year to report, to write, to freelance all over the place, to do more, uh, you know, kind of longer, investigative, well-considered uh, pieces rather than being, you know, uh, chained to the, 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 the pace of blogging. Uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It'll be good. I'm excited in that, you know, I love Motherboard and it was, I honestly really couldn't have asked for a better place to work for my first um, journalism job. Um, you know, they were with it. I think in my first meeting, I talked about, in my first interview, in-person interview, we talked about expropriating SoftBank and, <laughs> you know, they got, they were on board with it immediately. I think, uh, though, this will be a good chance for me to, you know, set up things so I can be independent and freelance and do any sort of other writing that I want to do permanently, right? Like my goal by the end of the six months, of course, is to do the reporting and the writing and the analysis, and the commentary, but also to like, you know, put more time into the in the podcast, put more time into the Substack that I'm launching, um, get, a, get a good livable wage off of these things so I can then do freelancing or any other part-time gig, write some of my fiction, you know, uh, all the things that I've wanted to do for years, but I think have pushed off because I've been, not that I haven't been operating on autopilot, but I've definitely like, there's a, there are limits to your time and thought process when your nine to five is writing, you know, it's very, it's been very hard to do, to write the sci-fi I've wanted to write since I was in school. It's been very hard to, uh, and it's also been hard, I guess, to, you know, explore other sorts of writing that I've been interested in. Um, and this will be the first chance in, uh, in years I get to, I get to do that. So I'm really excited about it. Um, and maybe, uh, and maybe, you know, dear listener, you'll, you'll have to listen to some more sponsored ads from our MIDI-R network. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you won't have to listen to any sponsored ads. Um, I will say that, yeah, the, 
I think I don't remember if I talked about this in a previous episode, but I think also it'll be a good the fellowship's a good chance also because they want like a piece a month. The structure of it is basically we give you these funds, you do reporting on at least like one thing related to what you get the fellowship for. So it'll be a good chance for me to like I now have a little bit more time to revisit some of the more academic macroeconomic stuff that I've wanted to. I haven't touched shit, I haven't touched economics in a in a class setting since um 2018. I think because the last year of school was your like an independent study, and I would really like to get back into. Uh, I, I need to touch up on some of my math, um, and uh, and and modeling and and relearn a few programming languages because uh, there's some fun stuff I'd love to do. Uh, I just don't actually have the ability to do it right now because I haven't. I'm I'm so out of practice. It's been four years. Yeah, I. I... I have said before that like the monkey paw curse of being an academic is like, like a lot of academics and I'm sure it's the same with journalists uh, and writers, right? That like you get into it because you're like, I love reading, man. I want to make reading my job, you know? And like, and with reading often comes like, you know, a love for writing or at least a a curiosity about writing, right? So it's like, man, I want to make reading and writing my job. That sounds so fucking good, man. I read and write all the time. And then it happens. And then you, and then you spend your day reading and writing. Sometimes, you know, stuff you want, sometimes stuff you don't want. Um, And then at the end of the day, you're like, I do not want to read or write anything. <laughs> yeah. I have, I've been doing it for work. It's, it, it now feels like work and I don't want to do it for pleasure. Right. So like, I mean, I, I don't remember the last time I read uh, a book for pleasure, right? Which unfortunately mm. means I don't read a lot of fiction um, because I read so much nonfiction of various kinds. And, and like the same with, uh, is with writing, right? Like, like I could not, it would be really hard for me to be like now oh nine to five Monday through Friday is done now it's my nights and weekends time to sit down and do the exact same thing I've just been doing for <laughs> for forty hours but this time I'm doing it because I want to do it <laughs> right 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 yeah you know it's I think it's it's hard I think you know the first year and a half working at Vice it was that I felt I was like what at one point. Am I not going to be able, like, do I not like it? Because after five o'clock comes, I don't do any more writing. And I'm like, whoo, no more writing. Like, I'm not, I'm supposed to love it. I'm supposed to do it all the time. And then realizing eventually, no, that's just because you did it for eight hours and you're doing it for eight hours every day. Um, and what you want to do after that is, you know, turn off a little bit, go dancing, mm-hmm. play an instrument, watch something else, but not do more of it. And so I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'm excited for all the stuff I'll get to do in the time that I'm, I might have otherwise um, spent. I'm going to try. I would like to try. Well, first, the first month, I need to get a real sense of like what my productivity without a job is going to be like, you know, in the sense of like, you know, when I'm the most creative, when I'm the most writing, when I can do the most self editing and all that uh, based on the actual day itself or the week, and then construct a schedule around it because I would like to be, I want to write at a high clip. Some of that will be public facing and some of that will just be for me and some of that will be stuff I'll sell, you know, or, or it will appear in other forms. But I would like to keep writing at the clip that I was advice. I just want it more so on my exact terms, you know. A hundred percent. Yeah. My, my goal, 
uh, for next year is in the first six months draft like draft the entire manuscript of my of Hell my yeah, book. Brother. I know I know I can do it. Uh, I you know can do I, it. I know I can do it. But that means that like consistently writing at a good clip because it also means it also I also am going to have to be working on other stuff. So it's yeah. like. You know, like uh, it's not going to be my uh, entire full time job is writing that book. It's going to be part of other stuff that I'm working on. So, but I think we can do it. I think so. I think this concludes a segment of two out of three of your friends have good news. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jeremy. Well, you you got you got to get up on it now. You got to get up on it. Where's that record deal? Shit. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't trying to sell music. I mean, we, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll manifest something. Maybe we can have like a musician on with skin in the game to kind of give us an idea of what, uh, what the music industry is really like for musicians trying to survive. I mean, it's not like it used to be where, you know, you could tour and everything like that. Now you've got all these streaming companies and like exclusivity shit with it yeah that would be something fun to talk about but no there's not a record if i make an album and put it out i'm just putting it out for free (laughs) if people like it enough then i'll i'll get something pressed and then i'll put that out but you know i oh yeah i take that back i do have some good news here let me show you guys something real quick you guys know zedek the guy who created our mecha luddite design Mm -hmm. yeah the tmk logo yeah, he gave this to me for uh, our portrait of me. Wow! <laughs> Fuck! That oh looks my so God. good. Yo. Because right. you guys, you're missing out. It's, it's a fucking <laughs> dope-ass design of Jeremy as a barbarian. It I looks so that. fucking good. You, wow, you heard our are, reactions. <laughs> what are ZZX's rates? I would, I would love to commission a few things from him. Definitely a John Brown uh yeah uh portrait i'd love to commission from him and also self-portrait no i love his work you know then speaking of music one thing i'm really excited for next year is i I, well i've been doing saxophone lessons um not consistently this year but i'm really going to be picking up the pace uh, in the coming months and all right bill clinton you going on arsenio (laughs) and and you know i was for a while i was joking but i am actually going to try to do flight school. Um, I, I really, you know, I don't know how to drive a car, but I'm going to learn how to fly a plane. I got, pilled, <laughs> I got pilled by the flight simulator. And one of my, uh, one of my old coworkers, her, um, her boyfriend, her fiance just posted a picture of him flying the plane for the first time. And I was talking to her, I was like, okay, how, what's up there? Like, when do you, when do you start flying? And, and she was like, oh, he got pilled from the, for, he got pilot pilled from flight simulator. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Me fucking too. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I need to put in six months. It takes about six months to learn how to fly it. And then you fly around the area, then you fly across country, and you do them solo with an instructor. It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Maybe things. go down, maybe, maybe uh, hit up a certain flight school in Florida. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, Ed, I don't think, I don't think you're gonna, I don't think you're gonna get a pilot's license just on basis of what the stuff that we cover on this episode, even if it is parody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're probably right. I would not. I would not be um I would not be surprised if you know uh my file 
my FBI file, it's before and after I learned how to fly. It's just, yeah. <laughs> all, all, I'm, all I'm hoping for is if all three of our names are on a list, I hope they're touching. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're bracketed. They're bracketed. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. I, I will say, Jeremy, you did have good news. Yours was just much earlier in the year, and we didn't really announce it, but you got a full-time job, man, after a very long time of searching, after a pandemic-induced unemployment for a very long time. Uh, you, you've, you know, this year, you got a full-time job, um, so you're making, you know, regular uh paycheck that that's massive that 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 was uh way better news than uh than what we we got going on right now mm-hmm. that you know so let's celebrate that yeah I and mean, there's a reason why the our recording release schedule has been so wonky sorry yeah i mean but you know that's 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 just life right like you know being a for us, the podcast, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Ed and I hosting it, you producing it, like this is not our full time job. This is not our main gig, right? And so, like, yeah, yeah. when you got a full time job that started eating up thirty five, forty, forty five hours of a, a week, depending on you know how how long they fucking keep you at that uh, office. Um, you know, the, it, the, the other things have got to be flexible to move around it. And that's just part of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, to quote, uh, what's his name from, uh, Jurassic Park, um, life finds a way. Hey, darn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listener. I'm high as shit. <laughs> Um, all right, well, we can move on from uh, from up, uh, update corner. One last thing before we get over to LLMs, and uh, this is fine because I, I, I think that uh, what this means is that next week's Patreon episode is going to just be a direct continuation of this because we got a lot of stuff to talk about with the large language models and open AI and, all, and, and chat GPT and all that shit. Um, Free episodes, the one that just came out with Mel Hogan and the one that's coming out next week with, uh, you know, Dan Green, spoiler alert. Um, you know, they are direct connections. And so we'll, we'll just make these premium episodes for this week directly connected as well. But, uh, one last thing I want to get to is a little, a little bit of insure tech, uh, an insure tech item that I came across, which is very interesting and, uh, worth talking about. So, um, earlier this year, uh, not that long ago, Policy Genius, which is an insurtech startup, they're like an online marketplace for mainly life insurance, but other insurance as well. Um, and just a side note, I fucking hate the name of a lot of these insurtech startups. Policy Genius? Yeah. There's also, there's, there's another one. There's an embedded insurtech startup, a unicorn from Australia called Cover Genius. Not to be confused with Rap Genius. Not to <laughs> be confused with Rap Genius. had a short stint. <laughs> they heard the really bad Alec Baldwin movie, Baby Genius. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, right. they're all fucking baby brained. So that, you know, that. <laughs> 
but it's so they just have the most the stupidest fucking names like i it's making me nostalgic for the days when they would just take a noun and drop the vowels right like like do that like you know P- policier or something like policy G- fuck off anyway <laughs> uh, <laughs> they released a uh a uh home and auto insurance technology survey where they surveyed a number of uh, consumers looking at, you know, asking them questions about their sentiments towards uh, technology usage and adoption uh, and applications in the home and auto insurance sector. And this is their second survey, second annual survey that they've done. And the results are, uh, extremely telling in multiple regards here. So I'll just read the headline uh, right off the bat where they say, most Americans still refuse to install data sharing devices for insurance discounts. I'll read a little bit here from the beginning and then we'll get to the figures that I think really tell a story. So even though home insurance rates are rising faster than inflation and the cost of car insurance continues to increase, most Americans still refuse to install data sharing devices in their homes or cars in exchange for insurance discounts, according to the second annual Policy Genius Home and Auto Insurance Technology Survey. For the second year in a row, we asked Americans with auto, homeowners, and or renters insurance which advanced data monitoring devices like dashboard cameras and doorbell cameras they'd be willing to use if their insurance company gave them a discount for doing so. Like last year, the majority of Americans still say no discount is worth installing these devices, even as insurance costs are rising in 2020 or 2022. It's it's so good to have <laughs> empirical evidence provided by the industry, which means right. that you know these questions were geared in such a way to not give this response, right? right. And yet people were so o- still overwhelmingly uh, consen- you know, in consensus about their categorical rejection of shit like, you know, use this dashboard camera or doorbell camera or other smart home device or car device, uh, you know, that's going to collect a ton of data about you. Uh, in return, you'll get some insurance discounts, right? Like, and even then they're like, no, fuck, like, fuck off. I don't want it. No, di- literally no discount is worth installing these devices and giving you that data. Which is right. It shows that I think people have a good understanding of uh, what this re- of uh, of the technopolitics here, what the relation here is between uh, data devices and insurance companies. Yeah, you know, and it is heartening to see uh, the rejection of it. You know, I think someone tweeted at me the other day that in every episode of the pod, they hear me lose more and more faith in humanity. But this is a this is a good one. This is a restorative one, um, you know, because this is this also goes back to what we're talking about, right? Where the mass adoption of surveillance devices is frightening in of itself, but when you zoom out of it, it's usually uh, usually what we see is when people are adopting these things, it's only after 
so many stops have been pulled out to try to make it palatable. You know, your community requires it or demands it. Other neighbors have it and push it onto you and become salesmen for it. Crime in the neighborhood, uh, partnerships with police departments, massive subsidies, free giveaways. I mean, like when I got my internet service, when I got Fios, they offered uh, Google I think it was a Google Home device for free um, with the uh, with the subscription uh, to the internet service, right? It's 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 these all these sort of loss leading things are really one of the only ways you can get people to do it because it's not just the real cost that you have to deter people from, uh, but you also have to deter them from like the the hidden costs, right? The social cost uh, that they understand will be in, in uh, you know inflicted on them if they have a surveillance device people shunning them maybe people mocking it um people targeting or or, or figuring out ways to have the have those uh, target those specific homes or those specific places because of the device because they in of themselves add new levels of vulnerability but also because people just don't want a fucking giant eye of mordor in their home and that's the most important takeaway you can't grind that out of people uh, no matter how many billions of dollars you throw at that mm-hmm. and this is a direct refutation of the the bullshit line we've been hearing for years that privacy is dead that people yeah. don't care about privacy right yeah. that like you know and and wrong if you give people a choice they very clearly care about it and they categorically make decisions uh that are privacy preserving right uh, and they understand that not all data is equal and not all data sharing is equal, that some data shared with some people uh, is not worth the price of admission, right? Not worth a free device uh, or subsidies or anything like, or discounts on your premiums. Like, because they know that this is a deal with the devil that they're making, right? That like, you know, this is not going to turn out in their favor. They know that if insurance companies are pushing these devices on you, it's not for your benefit, right? It's because they think that they're going to benefit more out of that deal in some way. And, and it's the, it, the way that they frame the, these, the way that Policy Genius frames the, this whole survey is also extremely telling as well. It's very subtle, but it's highly revealing. Um, cause they, they mention multiple times, you know, uh, even as insurance costs are rising, even though home insurance rates are, are rising faster than inflation, even though this the cost is going up, you know. In other words, even you know the the, the question they're really asking here is how high do we need to crank up insurance costs via premium prices, loss prevention, claims denials, until customers will acquiesce to using this technology, right? That's actually the question they're asking here, right? They're like, how high does inflation need to rise? How high do premium prices need to rise? How many claims do you need to have rejected until you finally give in and use these data-driven devices that you know, and, and give all give all that data directly to us? How how bad do we need to make things for you to finally give in? Because that's ultimately what a lot of this is about, right? Like a lot of the talk about privacy is dead. People don't care about privacy. No, what it is, is it's, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, 
not acquiescence, it's apathy, right? It's like apathy is a self-defense mechanism. You know, it's, uh, uh, it's not that people don't care. It's that they have been put in positions where they are unable to care, where right. they are unable to make decisions, unable to ac- exercise their agency. And when you're put in that position, you can either pull your hair out about it and fret about it and think about all of the ways that your data is being you know, extracted and sold and used against you. In other words, you can be us <laughs> or you can just stop caring, right? Because you're like, uh, like it's out of my control. It's out of my power. It's out of my knowledge. I don't know what's happening. I have no ability to change it. And so the, the sanest thing to do here is, uh, is to like, uh, create this kind of shield of apathy um, as a self-defense mechanism. That's not a choice people made. That was a, that was a condition people were thrown into. Right. And I think it is very telling and very heartening that we see that when people are given a choice about, you know, do you want to, would you use this in exchange for that? They say, no, right. They make the privacy preserving, they make the wise, uh, prudent decision. Yeah, you know, and and it also does make me curious, like, you know, these these corporations in of themselves also like they they do extensive surveys and testing and 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 have a good sense or attempt to have a good sense of at what point consumers will adopt something and at which point they won't. Right. And so, you know, there was reporting that came out I want to say a week and a half ago, talking about how uh the Amazon Echo had been um you know, one of many sort of disasters at uh, the company, I think it was through Bloomberg, but specifically that it was a disaster because there was a lack of direction, because it was a massive loss leader, because it was, you know, um, it, it, because it was unpopular or the, the aspect of using it as a node and integrating as part of a network to keep people on the Amazon platform is not working, right? And so people were were failing to figure out, okay, like what do we do with the Echo? What do we do with Alexa? Should we just shuttle it? But but I think one thing I always come away with unanswered from these sorts of investigations and pieces is like, you know, um, what is their sense of how much money you have to put into these things for people to actually start using them, right? Because I mean, or, or maybe framed a different way, right? These things are obviously loss leaders because you need to put billions of dollars behind them. So do they internally know or believe that if you put billions of dollars over a certain amount of years, that they'll achieve the goal or that they, you need to put X amount or that you need to stagger it or that you need to flood people with it? You know, like that's one of the things I feel like I mean, we never get really a sense of or a way to read. We just get thrown dollar figure amounts. We're spending five hundred million. We're spending two billion. We're spending three billion a year, but not the larger rationale behind why they need to spend that specific amount of money over that specific time. Um, and that's something I would always be interested in reading, but you know, rarely do right um, because I always wonder also. I always wonder if it's connected to like, okay, we can't actually flood people with this right now because of this level of resistance. And then if we do, that money will be wasted. So we spend this much money because it will give us supposedly, um, 
you know, uh, substantial returns down the line and this much money will go much further once we've eroded people's resistance to this new product or idea. Yeah, I think there's absolutely like a, a, a whether strategically or not, like they are playing this long game of like uh, like normalization, right? Like you can't you can't throw people into boiling water. You need to like slowly rise the temperature uh, and get people used to it, right? And and I think this ties. I'm not done talking about the insure tech, but it does tie directly into I think a lot of what we're seeing with like. Open AI's role out of like Dolly and Chat GPT. I think a lot of that, like these kind of consumer-facing, uh, you know, AI systems, are a way of like getting people used to interacting with these systems in uh, various ways. You know, dialogical, uh, visual, and so on. But I, and I, and I think as well that these companies, whether it's Amazon Echo or the insure tech sector, like like they also are always looking out for opportunities. Uh, to force this on people as well, right? Like, like it's a, it's carrot and stick. They might roll it out with some subsidies, you know, hey, sign up for this internet service and you'll get a free Google Home or Amazon Echo. Hey, sign up for this insurance policy and you'll get a free, uh, you know, ring doorbell camera or, or, or dash cam or something like that, right? Or, or a Google thermostat, Google Nest, um, you know, so there's a little bit of carrot there and then there's a stick, right? And they're, you know, Hey, sign up for this. Cause you got no choice, right? Use this technology cause you got no choice. And that should already exist as well. I mean, this is, this is classic, you know, I'm, I'm ringing the, uh, the hyper visible gong because I'm referring to luxury surveillance versus imposed surveillance. And so, you know, the, uh, chalk up another tally uh for for that reference it's just such a good spot on uh analysis um but this is exactly what's happening here i want to i want to also re- uh talk about the specifics of these findings because i think the the numbers really tell a story here but also the way that the numbers are framed themselves so policy geniuses um uh survey found here are two for the, the the top four findings. So, sixty eight percent of Americans would not install an app that collects driving behavior or location data for any insurance discount amount. That so sixty eight percent of Americans that is up from fifty eight percent last year. It's a ten point jump uh, since last year's survey. Sixty eight percent of Americans would not install a live dashboard cam uh, camera for any insurance discount amount. 65% of Americans would not install smart home devices such as doorbell cameras, water sensors, or thermostats that collect personal data for any insurance discount amount. 77% of Americans would not install a smart doorbell camera, such as a ring, that shares facial recognition data with third parties for any insurance discount amount. That number is up from 67% last year. Those are massive numbers. That's super majority (laughs) or above in every single uh, category. And importantly... The way that they're framing the findings, at least, which leads me to believe this is how they frame the questions, is it's about, it's a direct transaction of, would you use this device for a discount? 
that is the best case scenario in act in like reality with how these policies would work. What you would be offered instead is a opportunity for a discount. They're framing it as a direct data for discount deal. Um, in reality, that data might might give you a discount, might keep things the same, might also increase your cost. So I can only imagine if you were to frame it in that more realistic way to people that the numbers of denial would go up. If there was no assurance, like if there was no assurance, it would be a direct data for discounts transaction. And instead you're like, would you share this data for the possibility of a discount or perhaps the possibility of a price increase? I, I reckon a lot more people would start saying no um, than what already have in the in the survey. Yeah, you know, and I, I think I think you'd be right. You know, I think it's it's it'd be hard to even you know think or one thing i'm curious about is like you know at what point what like truly what would people what would convince people to trade away privacies and 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 what sort of price trade or transaction are they thinking of that's going to have to be made or is it like something that you can't simply compress to price and there have to be a multitude of of utilities that you know get added onto it because I think also with this insuretech, what I'm thinking of is how in the reporting on um, on the Alexa um, collapse or the gutting of the unit, you know, one thing that comes up that was kind of surprising is that a lot of people just said it was like a glorified speaker, and so that was one reason why they're abandoning it. Um, but other people also saying that they weren't comfortable with. Uh, some of the privacy concerns that emerged from it. And, 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 and I'm curious, you know, when it comes to this and other devices, how much or like what, if there's one that takes over for people or if both are present, it's a done deal. Right. Like if you both are worried about privacy concerns and you don't think it does anything for you, there's no room for it or that privacy concerns are by and large the overriding concern. And there's really no price at which a utility at which you'd be willing to sacrifice them, which is great. I mean, I think the the fact that like no dis, the, you know, the survey results for this one is that no discount is worth. I think that really shows like people are drawing a strong line in the sand in terms of like like this shit is not a market, right? Like, don't yeah. monetize yes. this, don't marketize this. Like, like no discount is worth it because this is not something that should be uh, you know in the marketplace, right? Yeah, that's good. Now, if only they could take out their hammers. <laughs> and and unfortunately, you know, so we talk about carrot and stick, luxury versus imposed. What this survey is doing is it's it's testing the waters for how like can you can how to what extent can you use the carrot? To what extent can you frame this as, market this as a luxury product? And I think what the sur- what this survey is finding and other surveys uh, and have uh, similarly have found that. There, the, that approach only gets you so far. It only carves you off a very small segment of the market. If you want everybody else, got to start finding ways to, to use that stick, start imposing it on people. And I think that's where the rubber really hits the road. This is an argument I've been making and other people have been making for a very long time too, is that like, you know, this shit comes for you. Uh, eventually, um, through its normalization, through the expectation that you use it, and 
uh, talk, you know, in a in a really nice uh, uh, blog post discussing the Policy Genius Survey, Duncan Minty, who uh, runs a really good blog um, called like Ethics and Insurance. I'll throw a link to the blog post in the episode description. But uh, actuarial uh, consultant, uh, you know, uh, uh, who's been in the industry for like you know for over twenty years regularly writes about these kind of issues around like ethics and insurance and consults with companies about it. And he had a really good blog post talking about the policy genius survey. I want to read a little bit from him uh, where he says, uh, consumers may not want to trade their data for premium discounts, but they are unlikely to actually be offered those discounts in the first place. Instead, there's more than a hint here of insurers positioning themselves away from being a loss-paying business and more towards a loss-prevention service. In other words, there will be less insurance on offer and more devices in its place. The latter will determine if the former is offered. So devices will become gatekeepers to the market for cover. What that means, in other words, is that as insurers start moving towards a more fixation on loss prevention as like the primary function of their business, then using these devices won't be like an option. It won't be a premium service. It won't be a luxury. Using these devices and sharing the data they collect will be uh, a requirement, a condition for insurance coverage in the first place. So now the question is no longer what size discount would you accept to use these devices? Then now, now the now the situation gets framed as uh, which devices will you use in order to have insurance coverage? Right, like that's a very different relationship. That's a very different transaction, uh, power dynamic, all of that stuff. Right, uh, like insurance is a. Uh, an essential service. It's a necessity for life uh, in, 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 in our society um, and insurance of various kinds, right? Like insurance is a uh, fundamental institution uh, in a society. Uh, and if access to that fundamental institution starts getting gatekeeped by usage uh, of these devices, sharing of data, AI, you know, that's analyzing the data while also automating the claims process. Like all this shit already exists. It's not like, oh, this might happen in the future. It's more like this shit's already happening. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a technological question at this point. It's a, uh, it's a business question. At what point does the business model shift to, uh, force, uh, and require to impose, uh, the use of these technologies? And, and, you know, Hearing someone that, that's been a, a consultant uh, in this industry for for over twenty years saying that like this is the this is the way he sees things developing towards the gatekeeper model. Uh, I don't like it. I I, 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 I am I, I will stand up and I will say I don't like it. <laughs> What's wrong, Jay? Then what's wrong with the gatekeeper model? You don't like you don't like the gatekeeper model. You don't think this is the best way to quantify all the hidden cost of daily life so that we can have a market-friendly, market-legible um, daily interactions with one another that allow us to properly assess risk of any event and 
price it properly so that we can deter people from doing risky things, from doing unsafe things, from doing things that they know they shouldn't do but are doing for one irrational reason or another. You don't you don't think it's good to have your entire life subject to the marketplace and to devices that gatekeep and, and surveil your every move? The the things it portends in terms of shifting business models um, for insurance is that like you know, remember this, right? Remember this, that the vast majority of people do not want to use surveillance technology, do not want to share data with insurers for any discount. Remember this when such policies still proliferate, right? It's not because consumers wanted them. It's not because consumers were demanding them. It, uh, it, you know, it, is, it is instead because they were imposed uh, on people, right? Like that's, that's the key here, right? Like this is technological adoption by imposition, right? Uh, not, not by demand, right? Like, you know, while consumer sentiments are strong, uh, it's, it's the, still the case that the insurer's interest and positions are stronger. Uh, there's a huge market push for these technologies. You know, I was at the uh, InsureTech Connect industry conference in Vegas where I saw over a hundred uh, startups pushing these exact kinds of technologies, selling them, telling the big insurance carriers that this is the future, that they need to get on board, that these are the services they need to use. Uh, and, and there's a lot of reception to that idea. So, you know, there's a, there's a very big market push for these technologies. Um, you know, loss prevention is a key profit engine for insurance. Uh, it's also the fact that consumers are largely ignorant of how the industry works, and that's by design. Uh, the insurance industry thrives on people having no clue what they do, uh, and, and uh, regulators are also largely captured and toothless, right? So, like, uh, you know, th this, is, this is the the kind of contours of the market right now. Um, the uh, Duncan Minnie's blog post also pointed me to uh, and reminded me of a 2020 survey by the Association of British Insurers, which is the big industry group for, uh, for the UK, uh, you know, which was also a, a kind of consumer sentiment survey um, looking at these same kinds of questions. Uh, and, that that survey by the Association of British Insurers, um, one of their conclusions was, uh, quote, consumers are primed to feel particularly cautious and skeptical when it comes to their data in the context of insurance. It also means that they are more likely to interpret new developments in relation to their data as designed to work in the industry's best interest, for example, as a means of increasing prices and profits, rather than their own interest. This shit kills me the way that they like continually frame uh, these, you know, that the problem with how consumers interpret new developments, right? And how to change those interpretations, regardless of the fact that they're, uh, they are in interpreting uh, things in the exact correct and well-founded way. <laughs> how dare consumers uh, interpret <laughs> these new technological developments as designed to work in the industry's best interest? Wow. Huh? Wow. That's Where do they crazy. get these ideas? And how do they I really uh, don't pry trust it us. out of their brain? <laughs> they really don't trust us, huh? They really don't want to see profits go up. That, I mean, that's that's 
what this comes down to. This is an anti-entrepreneurial spirit that's infecting this country, you know, and it's and it's one of the things. It's one of the things that's responsible for the downfall. I think, you know, I think if we, I think if we just embedded insurtech everywhere, um, smoking would go down, uh, healthcare access would go up. Uh, you know, what else would go down? My brain is fighting me on this. <laughs> I tried to come into you ever try to come into a bit and, and loud just the static fills your head. <laughs> and you forgot that uh, all the insurance executives would add a few zeros to their bank accounts. That's a good. That's a social oh, benefit. Listen, dude, uh-huh. we, we we live in a universe of scarce resources. It makes sense. It should go to the people who create insurance tech. That's right. Where else is it going to go? This reminds me, too, that uh, I just recently... I don't know if this was a, a, a new development since I've lived in the U.S., but I just recently um, learned what, uh, what are they, federal spending accounts... Oh, the FSAs? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome back, (laughs) Jathan. Nothing has changed, but it has gotten worse. Uh, And that shit is... No, flexible spending accounts. Uh, Yeah, I just recently learned what that shit was. And Mm -hmm. that's unbelievable to me that this is how uh, healthcare is being managed in this this great country. Tell us what... Why you think that's an unreasonable system after spending so much time in the country with a medical system with the health with the health system? <laughs> <laughs> you mean I've got to sit down every year? Hey, I do get a tax exempt account. Okay, that sounds great. But you mean I got to sit down every year and guess how much I'm going to spend <laughs> on healthcare that year? Yeah, put that money into a, a, a an account, and if I don't spend. The, whatever money is left over, I just forfeit it and my employer gets to keep it. That sounds... Yeah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that fucking crazy? What the fuck? What the actual fuck? I love... I, man, I tell you, the the extent to which this country is, is tilted, owned by, organized around the principle that your employer should retains the right to fuck you over whenever you want is amazing it really is i saw i saw this because there was getting passed around a money.com article uh that was that found that uh according to new data 44 percent of workers with flexible spending accounts in 2019 forfeited money on average the amount lost totals 339 dollars per person in 2020 those numbers went up 48 percent forfeited and the average amount was $408. Uh, so people are literally just losing hundreds of dollars uh, of forfeited uh, <sighs> money from these healthcare accounts, which apparently employers just keep because there is no regulation or no tracking about what happens to the money that's forfeited from these accounts. Uh, and so employers are just like, that, I, I guess that's ours. Thank you. Thank you for the holiday bonus. And ours forever. Folks, remember to give your boss a bonus uh, this holiday season. And give him a one-two tip combo. Tip, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Tip your, tip your landlord. I mean, I think that's really important. Yeah, tip your landlord. I saw somebody on Twitter talking about this article that they were saying that like n- n- this, had, this reeked as uh, like, you know, 
Democrat policy wonk solution, right? Like, <laughs> like this is like an FSA is absolutely something that was created by like one of these Ezra Klein motherfuckers who like, you know, the people that were super excited mm-hmm. about the, uh, the, the affordable care act, like marketplace, mm-hmm. um, where they're like, yo, managing your healthcare finances, uh, and access to healthcare should be, uh, a, it should be like a like a a a, 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 a pen and paper Dungeons and Dragons uh, RPG where you've got to have like multiple spreadsheets going at the same time. You're you're developing your character. You're rolling dice. Uh, you know, working with probabilities to try to develop the 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 best you know the best profile, the best stat sheet that you can. You know, you got min max. You got to start min max in your healthcare, Ed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're you're fucking with the monkeys, Paul Jathan, because somewhere there's a, someone in an insurance company going. You know what we should do? We should have people roll for points, and if you roll like a one for like I don't know, like medication, and you're you take five medications a day. Well, that's just the luck of the dice, I guess. <laughs> They're going to see that and go, hey, man, it sounds like a feasible idea. It's better than what we got going on right now. Mm. Mm. We need to throw more of the world into a probability engine. What's the probability that I'm going to spend X amount of dollars on healthcare this year? Well, I guess we roll the dice and find out. Uh- <laughs> and then look, and then... We're going to also, on the side of that probability engine, create a marketplace where, you know, maybe we can make bets on whether or not you're going to fully spend all the money in your FSA account. And uh, we could turn those bets into some sort of uh, financial instrument, maybe a derivative. I don't know. Maybe. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. Let's. Ooh. ooh we are securitizing FSA accounts. Maybe. I don't know. I think. And if I we worked at Goldman Sachs, this would, this would be a partner making idea. This is. It's not too late, Jake. It's partner. not too late. <laughs> Jeremy, delete this up. This file. <laughs> Oh man, or or you know, this is how you make senior partner at McKinsey coming up with yeah. these ideas. This is how you become a uh, mayor of a little town in Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> but not before you spent some time doing um it's, it's not clear what you did, but you spent some time in Somalia. You know? I was on holiday. <laughs> Look at the time, all right? It was around the holidays. <laughs> yeah. I had a gun. I mean, who doesn't on holiday? <laughs> for protection. Somalia. Yeah, for protection. Who, who, who played him in Black Hawk Down? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> We'll never I, know. That's classified. I don't know. <laughs> I have also just realized in talking about the FSAs that this does directly link up to the logics of InsureTech as well, because essentially what a federal sa- uh, a flexible savings account is, is, you know, it is a personalized 
individualized approach to um, managing healthcare, uh, which is essentially how uh, what we need is a uh, a big giant flexible savings account, which is you know one that's like uh, like like a, a big account that everybody in the country shares, right? And then like, you know, you put in, uh, you know, uh, like, you know, you put in like a, a, an average amount uh, uh, into that every single month. And then, uh, you know, in case you do have healthcare expenses, well, then you pull money out of that, out of that big giant account that we all share um, but it's fine because like everybody's paying in, not everybody uses healthcare, not everybody uses as much, you know? So like, if you're healthy, that's great. You didn't need it, but you paid in for the certainty that you had money in your big flexible savings account in case you needed that healthcare. But also like you've created uh, a much healthier community because everybody else has access to this big flexible savings account. Uh, that is how insurance works, right? That's how like insurance, well, that's how, uh, <laughs> Uh, insurance ought to work as like a as like a uh, a socialized or a single payer system. Instead, what we've done is the same logic of the insure tech companies, which is instead of pooling all that risk together in like you know big uh, uh, shared accounts, how about every single person gets their own little risk pool? Uh, we'll call them risk puddles. And that's fine. That's good because puddles are a lot more flexible than pools. Uh, they're smaller, right? And then you fill up your own little risk puddle. Um, and then that's, that's your access to, uh, to insurance, to healthcare, uh, you know, wh whatever security and certainty you need. It depends on your ability to pay in. Uh, and, and if you don't pay in enough, uh, tough luck. If you pay in too much, hey, at least you got your health, right? Like uh, <laughs> that's that's the logic of uh, draining the risk pools, as I've called it in an essay before, of like this hyper personalization of insurance of the of what's uh, you know called demutualization. Instead of insurance being a a, a social institution of mutual risk sharing, uh, it is instead a a, a neoliberal. Uh, savings account of individualized uh, risk management. Uh, so essentially, the uh, FSA is the blueprint of uh, a lot of the trajectory, uh, the logics that uh, insurance, thanks in part to InsureTech, are uh, rapidly moving towards. So uh, if you if you love the flexible savings account for your home for your uh, health care, wait until you got flexible savings account for your car insurance uh, and for your auto insurance or for your homeowner's insurance uh, and for life insurance and uh, natural disaster insurance. Uh, you know, wait until the flexible savings account comes for every other uh, uh, you know uh, area of risk in your life. Um, that 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 is the like. This is the model of the like anarcho-capitalist uh, utopia that we talked about ages ago with uh, David Friedman's book oh. Machinery of Freedom, where like instead of having social institutions, you have private insurance, but these private insurance. Uh, will will absolutely be organized along hyper individualized lines, such that they don't 
actually function like insurance whatsoever. They are just products with the with the 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 name insurance, um, but none of the content or or or, or uh, uh, purpose of insurance. Oh, here's the part of the episode where I start to lose faith again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, you know, one thing I I would be curious about from your research into InsureTech, have there actually been attempts to create novel financial instruments that would allow, that have a potential for runaway speculation um, on risk pools and on associated provision of insurance to specific commodities or to people's health or has it largely been along like the lines of okay we're trying to figure out tech to make that possible or figuring out tech that'll allow us to fine-tune optimize squeeze out more water from the rocks uh, that are the insurance plans uh, and insurance arrangements we currently have today maybe this gets to what you're talking what you're what you're talking about but there are things called insurance-linked securities. Um, uh. So there are... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to ask directly if there were securities, <laughs> but I... <laughs> uh, of course there uh, are. <laughs> so there are... <laughs> Uh, so there are uh, financial instruments the, the, where the values are tied to uh, and driven by uh, insurance loss events. And so they're largely based on like natural catastrophes. Okay. Um, they're That's like so, getting yeah, really yeah. big in climate change, things like that. And so, so there are securities that are linked directly to like big insurance loss events. Okay. So, so for the larger events, yeah. Okay, what about for people? Are there... <laughs> are there are there ones for the health outcomes? I know there are for other events that happen to people, and like you said, for climate events, for large disasters, for outcomes of you know certain phenomenon. But can I buy a security? Can I securitize someone's health care? And and or is there a way? Is is that even the right way to articulate it? Is there a way to take a bet or to to find myself securitizing someone's relationship to insurance? and their health. Are we safe from that? Now, this is a good question. Uh, to my knowledge, those kinds of securities, those kinds of insurance securities don't exist. Um, but Praise God. But you've just put it out into the world. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> and so now it will, uh, it will exist uh, <laughs> at oh some my point. God, I'll, I'll throw myself <laughs> off a fucking bridge if one of you make it. I will. <laughs> I'll fucking do it. There's, there is, there's some twenty-year-old uh, like securities analyst at Goldman Sachs who works like eighty hours a week, who is hard at work um, trying to construct uh, the like uh, insurance security that is directly tied to people's like healthcare outcomes. Uh, I mean, we have listeners who, for some reason, I don't get it. They work at a bulge bracket bank. They work at a tall five consulting firm and they listen. Maybe, and I, I mean, I hope it's like you're on the cusp of breaking clean and that's why. And it's not for some other reason. Uh, please, for the love of God, <laughs> do not, do not, do not be one of the people who creates one of those insurance linked securities. Please. 
I'm, I'm hanging on by thread. I mean, I do take life insurance policies out on all my friends. Uh, so, right. you know, oh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, but hey, that's not quite the same thing. You do it. Corporations do it to their workers. I mean, come on. That's right. <laughs> normal. It's a normal thing. We to live do. in dangerous times, Ed. And I need, I need, you know, uh, in case something happens to y'all, uh, I, you know, I, I need the, the peace of I need mind. $4 that comes billion. Dollars. A, yeah. I need the peace of mind. <laughs> It comes with a, a million dollar payout. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, there's a lots of ways to care for people or to show that you care for them. And one of them is to uh, take out a life insurance policy on them and not tell them <laughs> about it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> we have gone... A full episode uh, with, and we have not talked about <laughs> large uh, language, large language models. <laughs> so, uh, you know what, folks? Uh, you know, I, I think what we what we did is give you a preview of next week's episode, next week's yeah, premium yeah. episode yeah. Yeah. Um, during the holidays. Uh, you will be getting that that new content, that fresh content, um, hit in your inbox. Uh, and, and I, I, um, look, be on the lookout next week for a premium episode about large language models. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I imagine you'll probably, I imagine it's probably going to be a supersized episode too. We got a lot to talk about. Um, we with do. That. Yeah, there's a ton to talk about. So, you know, that's our, that's our holiday present, um, from us to you, uh, is, uh, a, pot- a potentially supersized episode about large language models. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it'll be a fun time. Um, hmm. There's lots of angles to handle. Ha- there's lots of angles to handle. Um, you know, ethics, uh, the political economy of them, uh, the technique behind them, their application, their sustainability. Uh, the resources required to construct them, lots of lots like, of things, like, and also like the general public and- discourse and response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the public kind of discourse and response about them as well. That's right. There's a lot of hand wringing, um, mm. and it's not hand wringing in the right ways. Yeah, <laughs> I got nothing against hand wringing, but wring them hands in the right way. <laughs> right, right, right. Not the wrong way. That's right. Um, all right. Well, I think with that, then we just put put you know one one you know I'm I'm like a top you know you you, you get me riled up with the insure tech and uh, you know I'm I'm a keep I'm a keep rolling on it. So, but this is good. Uh, the uh, I'm I'm always happy to revisit this. I think we actually do a good job of not turning TMK into a. Uh, a podcast about insurance technology, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though it's what I have uh, spent so much time thinking, uh, talking, writing, uh, discussing about um, this year. Uh, I'm so happy to have uh, had the ability to turn a weird hobby interest uh, into a primary research project. With that, uh, I, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for your support. Uh, much appreciated, as always. Necessary uh, the, for this podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm amazed that we have been running for over two years now. Yeah. Um, and like well over 200 episodes now. Um, that's insane to me. Hundreds of hours of content uh, of, of podcasting. Yeah, honestly. Thank you guys for the support. And also yeah. for the 
for coming along this journey with us as we develop and work on together, you know, our our, our criticism of tech and our framework and, and analysis, right? And it's also just been great to get support to have a conversation conversations with my friends about this as well, you know. So here's to another uh, another fun year, uh, full with more investigations and book clubs and and bits and uh, and SoftBank's commercials, you know, and maybe SoftBank gear. Who knows? Maybe, maybe next. <laughs> maybe next year is the year where we acquire SoftBank. <laughs> yeah, right. For a dollar, Masayoshi Son will be higher than a dollar. <laughs> I'll <laughs> buy that for a dollar. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, all right. Until next time. Later. Adios. Adios.